0: I'm Stuart, I know lots of you, I don't know all of you, I'd like to meet you all, give it some time. I am an elder at this church with my wife alongside Tyler and Haley and Chris and Merrill, and it's my privilege to uh, share the word of God with uh, you guys this afternoon. We are in the book of Philippians for the whole of the summer, we're still in chapter one, we're working our way through it. And it is a book that was written by the Apostle Paul whilst he was under house arrest. He wrote it to a group of believers that were the church of Philippi. He started that church about 10 years prior to the book that we're reading now. And he's writing back to them as a thank you because they are supporting him financially, basically, for the time that he's under house arrest. Because he's not fully in prison, he's actually living in his own house that's rented, and he has needs and he has costs. And this community was gracious enough and generous enough to support him financially. And so he's writing back to them to say thank you and to encourage them. Am I on the edge of feeding back here? Woo! Great. This Britney Spears mic is still something I'm getting used to. I feel like a diva, for sure. So, we're going to jump into Philippians 1, verse 19. And it's going to come up on the screen. I like to present to you guys NIV and MS, MSG, <laughs> it's the best version. <laughs> I never thought of that, that's awesome. Oh, it's just full of MSG, that one, it's so tasty. Uh, so the message version is the more tasty version on the right. Um, and I like to just read in parallel, it's helpful for me, one is more accurate from a literary stance and the other one is more easy to understand from a cultural stance. So. Verse 19, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. Last week, he told us how he's rejoicing despite people preaching the gospel for lots of various reasons, some good, some not so good. He's like, it's all good as long as Jesus is being proclaimed. I rejoice in that. He's saying, yes, I continue to rejoice because I know that through your prayers and through God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul rejoices despite of, not even despite, he rejoices in his circumstances, which, as I alluded to a little bit there, are prison and house arrest. He spent at least two years in prison in Caesarea. Then he appealed to Caesar and said, look, I'm a Roman citizen. Nothing's happening here. I'm going to rot in this jail in Caesarea because they want to keep me locked away. I appeal to Caesar. You have to take me to Rome. He goes to Rome. On that journey, he gets shipwrecked. They nearly die. Then when they get ashore, they're making a camp, and he gets bitten by a deadly snake. Amazingly, he doesn't die because of the healing power of God. But um, what has happened to him, is what he's talking about, will turn out for my deliverance. It's not been going very smoothly for him, but he's rejoicing because he knows that God's plan is at work. And he's right in the center of it. A little bit of ring on there, AJ. Could you pull that down, maybe reverb or something. Two ingredients to his deliverance that he's speaking about that we not- notice here in this text. He says, one, your prayers. He believes that prayer is powerful and it's effective and it's part of being a believer in ministry. And he's saying your prayers for me as well as God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus are what's going to turn out for my deliverance. Now, what's interesting in that last little line there, for my deliverance, I've underlined it, is that Paul is actually quoting, we don't know this because we're not Old Testament scholars and Jews, but he's actually quoting from Job. And if you were a Jew and you understood your Torah and you had read Job, which they had, you would, these, these words would sound familiar when he says, for my deliverance. He's referencing Job 13. And Job says, keep silent, keep silent. And let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, speaking of God, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. And what we see Paul doing here is that he frames his experience of prison and hardship and suffering through. Job's lenses, if you've tried beer goggles, they have nothing on Job goggles. <laughs> when you try Job goggles, does anyone, has anyone ever listened to Veggie Tales and they have like these really funny little infomercials in between things? I was coming up with this, with one for you guys. Are you struggling with self-pity and constant sadness? Feeling sorry for yourself because things just aren't going your way. Try new Job goggles, ooh, ah. Simply put them on and fire them up and you'll soon realize that things are way better than you originally thought. <laughs> Job goggles are in no way guaranteed to actually change any of your life's problems and are designed only to change your perspective. For True Trains, we recommend that you go directly to the Lord Jesus. Batteries are sold separately. Yeah. So you want some perspective shift? Put on some Job goggles, which is a guy who literally got wrecked down. I mean, go read the story of Job. He had everything taken away from him and he still remained faithful to God. So you want to know something interesting about Paul's time in prison? He wrote four of the New Testament books during this season. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon whilst in prison. Fairly productive, just a cool 15% of the New Testament. May as well get that busted out whilst I'm in prison sitting around. And I have to think like, wow, okay, maybe God had him there for that purpose. What, what, if, what if prison was actually downtime for Paul and the Holy Spirit's moving through him and writing scripture? Think of those four books of the New Testament and how much impact they've had for the last 2,000 years. We pick up in verse 20. Yes. Verse uh, mm, Verse 20. Okay, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this is where I want to spend most of our time this evening, because I feel like this is the pivotal verse Hopefully most of us have heard that before because it's been an anthem of Christianity resonating through time since then. The very first three words in this passage where he says, I eagerly expect, the original Greek word that he uses is a word that is a, a, a pictorial word and it means your head pushed forward, straining in expectancy, like you're running and you're straining, you're like leaning into it. He eagerly, expects. And in the message, I love how Eugene Peterson puts it, I can hardly wait to continue on my course. I don't expect to be embarrassed in the least. On the contrary, everything happening to me in this jail only serves to make Christ more accurately known, regardless of whether I live or die. They didn't shut me up. They gave me a platform Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his prize. Life versus even more life, I can't lose. What's Paul's number one goal? It's that Christ would be exalted in his body, whether that's through his life or through his death. No matter how, that's what he is set on that message version says they gave him a platform. And this is one of the most beautiful aspects of the gospel. It's something I love and something that I've been chewing through in various instances in my my life, is this idea of the gospel having the power to pivot what was meant for bad into good. So Paul says, they put me into prison and he did some spiritual judo and he flips that into a platform. They haven't silenced me, they've given me a platform. It's actually quite fun to think about this. In his house arrest, Paul would have had one of the Praetorian guard, one of the elite of Caesar's personal guard, they're like the SAS of Rome, chained to him at all times for six hour shifts. He literally had a captive audience they couldn't actually get away from him. They were chained to him. And he must have just been like, this is the best. <laughs> I don't even have to chase them around in the marketplace. I have six full hours and I'm gonna see that guy again probably in a couple of days. So, you know, we got, I'm, I'm in this prison for years with this rotation of men that I get to spend six hours with a time. And because of Roman thought, that guy wasn't, the centurion wasn't allowed to tell him, hey, you just need to be quiet. Roman had freedom of thought and idea, and so he had to sit and listen to Paul, and Paul's actually converting this Praetorian guard to Christ by the time that he's spending with them. It's a platform. It's not a prison. It's a platform. Two things happen for me when I read this, especially that statement at the end, which is a very powerful statement, to live is Christ, to die is gain. One, I'm very inspired by it. I kind of get the feeling when you're watching, it's similar to when you're watching a professional athlete compete in a sport that they are trained in, and even better when it's a sport that you like to play as well. So imagine you like to play basketball and you're watching Michael Jordan on the court, and it's just magic. You're like, that's incredible, I'm so inspired, let's go shoot some hoops. The other thing that happens for me when I read this is this little bit of a, Like, I don't know if I can say that. This little bit of a, uh, I feel a little arrested and a little challenged. And I'm like, I'm not quite there to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think that's good. I think that that's okay. I think that Paul is this incredible example of what it means to lay down your life for Christ And it's something for us to aspire to. It's something for us to see, like when we look at a Michael Jordan and we see the absolute incredible potential of humanity, we don't hate Michael Jordan because he makes the rest of us look bad. We love him because he inspires us. And I feel this way about Paul and his incredible statement. I'm a curious person and my brain goes to How is this man able to say this? What's happened in his life, in his journey? What has he experienced? What does he understand that empowers him to say something so intense? Can I say this? If I can't say this, what do I do with that? Am I condemned or am I inspired? How does he say this? Let's go to the next slide. I've Created this beautiful alliteration for you here. If you know anything about preaching, you have to use the same letter for the start of the words for your points. It's actually required. There's a course you have to take that teaches you how to do this. Uh, lucky for you, there's only three, not like 27 E's. The 27 E's for Paul. Um, how is Paul able to say to live as Christ, to die is gain? I think number one, he encountered Christ. If you know the story of Paul, who was formerly Saul of Tarsus, you'll know that he was not a great guy. He was passionately going around the Jewish kingdom, killing, persecuting, tying up, imprisoning Christians. He hated them. He was murderous. And on the way to Damascus, looking for more Christians that he can bully, Jesus encounters him, throws a spiritual hand grenade into his life, and appears to him in front of him on the road. Scripture says that he fell down, obviously in the presence of Jesus, he can't even stand up, and he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus speaks to him and says, I'm Jesus, I'm the one that you're persecuting. Why are you persecuting me? And then he says, get up and go to Damascus. Paul is blinded by this encounter, naturally, looking at God, it's quite bright, And the guys that are with him that are helping him, I guess they're like his assistants, lead him blinded into Damascus where the scripture says he spends three days not eating, not drinking, blinded. He was rocked, completely rocked to the core. Jesus appeared to this man and spoke to him audibly, tangibly, like heaven invaded and Jesus tore into real time. And he encountered and in that process, there's repentance and salvation. When he's in Damascus, the Spirit of God speaks to this guy called Ananias. And I always feel a little bad for Ananias. And then I'm also like, it's a pretty awesome assignment. But you can imagine Ananias has made some coffee and he's sitting down for his quiet time. And he's like, oh, Lord, what are you doing today? You know, And the Lord's like, okay, Ananias. So have you, you've heard of Saul, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the most murderous man in in all of the Jewish empire. So he's a couple of streets down from you right now. And I just want you to go over there and lay hands on him and heal him. And, And Ananias is like, sorry, Lord, come again. This coffee is really strong this morning. Wow, I'm hearing things, you know? And the Lord's like, no, I need you to go and pray for Saul of Tarsus. Ananias, it's recorded in scripture, even says back to the Lord, haven't you heard about this guy? Like, God, don't you know? Where's your, where have you been your head under a rock? Like, this is the guy that's murdering us. He came here to kill us. The Lord says, yeah, I need you to go and tell him. I've chosen him as an instrument of my kingdom. He will appear before kings and Gentiles and the sons of Israel. And I want to show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. And so Ananias cruises down the road to the specific street address that he's been instructed, probably shaking like a leaf, thinking I'm about to die. And he goes and he says to Saul, brother Saul. And when I first read that, as I was preparing this, I was like, Pff. he calls him brother. He hasn't even engaged, he hasn't even spoken with him yet, but God's told him, this man is in, is in my kingdom now and I need you to go and heal him. And Ananias' first words are brother soul, brethren, as in you're one of us. And to me that's the start of him experiencing the community of the kingdom of God. It's the start of him experiencing what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in community. Because the disciples at Damascus took him in, and it says he spent several days with them in Damascus, And after that, immediately he went into the synagogue proclaiming he's the Son of God. So that's step two is experience, where he's in this community of believers. He begins his discipleship journey as part of the Christians. His identity is being clarified. Remember, he's a scholar of the Old Testament. So you can imagine his mind is being blown as he's realized Jesus is the thread that runs through it all. And every crack in his theology is being filled with Jesus. Because he understood the Torah, inside out, front ways, back ways, had it memorized. So he understood the whole Old Testament like that, and now he's seeing the thread of Christ through it all. So his identity is being locked in. And he's receiving love from these people. Brother Saul, I know you were here to kill me, but let's hang out now, because we're brothers. And then he engages. He goes into the synagogue and he proclaims, he's the son of God. And it said that he was teaching and he confounded the Jews. The Jews that were there were saying, is this not the guy? Are we seeing double here? Is this not the guy that was out to kill us? Is this not the guy that came here with warrants from the the synagogue in Jerusalem to kill us? To bind us up and take us back to be punished? He's now in the synagogue proclaiming Christ Jesus Christ is lord and it says that he convinced them he proved that Jesus was the Christ with his knowledge of scripture it's interesting to me that his previous experience and his life journey was something that god utilized his understanding of the old testament gave him the ability to not just proclaim the gospel but actually convince Jews of all shapes and forms that Christ was God so God used his whole journey but in these three things he encounters the person of Jesus and that changes everything he's struck blind he can't eat or drink have you ever not drunk for three days you have to be pretty rocked to not drink water for three days that's an intense experience And then he has this guy come, lay hands on him. The scales fall off of his eyes. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he spends some time with these disciples being taught about Jesus. That's how this guy can start to say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This, next slide please, is a helpful little visual that... Is good for me in Christianity. It's not from the Bible. It's not theologically endorsed or approved by anyone. So this is just Stu's school of real life. <laughs> I, I talk about my, this with my friend Dom fairly regularly. Phase one of Christianity, I think of as infancy. You're just receiving. You don't know what's going on. You're coming in and you're like, okay, Jesus, Mary, the Holy Spirit, triune God. He died for me. He saved my sins. There's blood involved. Like it's a lot. There's a lot to take in. And you're just You're just receiving. You're being fed by others who are more mature, who know what's going on and you're receiving. But the goal is to advance from there into phase two, hopefully, which I'm gonna call adolescence, which is where you start to get a hang of this. You're experiencing Christ and you start to be able to feed yourself. So you you start having your own quiet times, your own prayer times, your own reading of scripture. You start to build systems. There's spiritual formation happening. And then the third phase of Christian development is maturity, and this is where you go from just being able to receive and feed yourself to now being able to feed others. And now you can handle yourself, and you have surplus, and you're giving to others, and I think in extreme maturity, you're almost just all others focused, and in so doing, that meets your needs as well. Paul is very much in phase three. And yes, he was on a fast trajectory there because Jesus literally appeared to him in the flesh, which I can say I haven't had that experience. It was pretty intense. But it was still a journey. He didn't just go from phase zero to phase three like that. God just didn't just like, bloop, flick a switch. And he's like, now I'm perfect Paul, apostle, Christian. I'm, I'm awesome at this. I'm a pro-Christian athlete. There's this growth And in this, I would say phase one one is very me-focused, and all the way through to phase three and beyond is very others-focused. Keep that in mind as we go through. So, the next slide. This is the original Greek of that statement, to live Christ, to die gain. This would have punched like the chorus of a song in the original reading of the book as Terry did a couple of weeks ago, the letter would have been read out loud in one sitting to the whole community at once. And this moment, ta, zen, Christos, ta, apothanain, kerdos, would have rung out because of the ta, mm, ta, mm. It has this assonance. It has this punch to it. And people's ears would have pricked up and they would have remembered this. To live Christ. To die Christ. Gain. This epic statement, this mantra of Christianity for thousands of years to come, is the fruit of Paul's encounter, experience, and engagement in the gospel. He gives us a little more insight into his worldview later on in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Bear with me as I read this. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. For the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ." a righteousness that comes from God, a gift from God on the basis of faith. Listen here. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participate in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death and also somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or have already arrived at my goal. Even Paul is humble, superstar athlete. I haven't, Paul's not even there yet, and he's humble enough to tell us that. I haven't attained it yet, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. He has this solid sense of purpose. I exist where I am now because Christ has taken hold of me, and I wanna take hold of whatever it is he chose for me to do. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. It's a little scary when you read Paul say, I haven't, I'm i not quite there yet. And I'm like, geez, bro, you're a lot, a lot ahead of me. <laughs> if you're not there yet, where am I? <laughs> anyway, forgetting what is behind. And straining, remember that head forward, straining to what's before me. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The ever upward call of Christ on our lives. He then says, all of us then who are mature, think back to phase three, should take such a view of things. (laughs) yikes this is Christian maturity this 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 is what we aspire to this is our goal this is our dream there is a strong and clear call this evening, and I even think in this season for us as a community to lay down the world, lay down the other, and take up Christ. But you don't get to play in the NBA without some work, and without some time, and without a journey, and a process. I'm a brand builder, that's what I do for my work. I I run a branding agency. And so, one of the things that we have to establish when we're working on a project is we have to establish point A, which is where we are, and we have to establish point B, which is where we want to get to, in order for us to draw the line between the two. So taking stock and being honest of our individual point A, i.e. where we are, because that's the dream, but where are we now is a really important first step in transformation. Let's jump to the next slide. So I'm going to give you guys two minutes to fill in the blanks, just in your own head. What is it for you right now to live? Is it to live for me is comfort and financial security and to die would be a real shame. To live is getting that job that I've really wanted so that I can show my parents how successful I am and to die, well, I have not thought that far. That's not even on my radar. What's your picture of the good life? What's your picture to live? I'm going to give you two minutes of silence. To just, you can write it down in your journal or you can just put it in your head. Just be honest with yourself. A couple of weeks ago or months ago, John Mark preached and one of his points was, what's your priority, singular? And I went away from that sermon and I was thinking about it, talking about it with and my wife, <laughs> and I was like, I think it's this or I think it's that. And she was like, I know what your priority is. I was like, oh, okay, interesting. Tell me. Please do tell me. And uh, she gently kneed me in the balls. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And said, your priority is your job. And I was like, okay, tell me more. And she's like, you will sacrifice everything for your work. You will sacrifice your health, your free time, your time with the family, your time with me, your spiritual development. It all comes second to your job. You prioritize your clients above everything else. And it hit me in the forehead like a bolt and yet, at the very same time, I wasn't angry or sad. I was like, you're right. I need to change some stuff. But there was this sense of excitement because of the clarity. And I was like, oh my gosh. If I'm about, about Jesus' kingdom, my job cannot have the number one seat in my life. That's wrong. And I need to change some stuff. And I've been in the process of changing that. And so it's my job as a spiritual leader in this community to ask you this similar question. What is it for you to live? And what is it for you to die? And where are you at with these two things? But the point of this is not so that you can be beat up. It's not so that you walk out here feeling like you've failed. It's to give you clarity. And hopefully in that, there's some conviction. And conviction is the illuminating power that leads to change. Conviction is her saying, I see it, it's your job, and me going, oh my gosh, you're right, and I couldn't see that. But now I see it, and now I need to change. Condemnation just smashes your face into the ground for the sake of smashing your face into the ground. There's no good in it. Conviction illuminates where you're wrong and shows you that you can change and be better. And this is something that I feel is really important and I wanted to share with this community. What motivates you? In this walk of faith, and I've been toying with this idea in Bible studies and conversations with some people and friends, and if you're part of our home group, we've touched on this in one of our discussions. What motivates you? Are you motivated by what I'm calling the gutter which is the downcast angle. I'm looking down and back. It's all about what you're not doing. It's negative. It's based in criticism, condemnation, guilt, shame. I'm not good enough. Resentment, I'll show them. I'm gonna prove bondage. The result of this is not happy Christians. Judgmental, bitter, frustrated Christians. I know because I was one of them. On the other hand, you can be motivated by the gospel, which is what you could be doing, and more accurately put, what he's done for you and then invites you into. And this is positivity, grace, conviction, not condemnation, because it's a healthy ingredient. Remember, it's a good thing. Confidence in your position in Christ, joy that wells up from within, not happiness that's determined by the outside. Surrender to his plan. I know I'm not enough. I know I'm not good enough. I know I don't have all the answers, Jesus. Here I am anyway. That's surrender. Hope in that. No matter what happens or where we are, I have hope. And let me tell you what will form out of that position when our eyes are up and fixed on the gospel is desire. And if there is anything that is rocket fuel for humanity, it's desire. When a person desires something, things will not stand in their way. People will change the world for desire. People will fly halfway around the world and spend all their money to win the mate that they desire. You will save up for years and years and years to buy the thing you desire. You will overcome endless obstacles for something you desire. You will not do that based on the left. And I have been deeply challenged recently that my motivation needs to come out of the gospel and my head needs to be lifted up to what he's doing and what he's done instead of trying to find fuel for change in the gutter of I haven't done enough. I don't read the scripture and go, wow, Paul's so good at this and I'm terrible at this. I read this and I go, here's a man completely sold out for Jesus. Man, I want to be like that. Let me paint a picture of gospel living the way that Paul does. Let's jump into verse 22. If I am going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Let's jump into the message for a quick additional viewpoint. As long as I'm alive in this body, there's good work for me to do. If I had to choose right now, I hardly know which I'd choose. It's a hard choice. My desire to break camp here and be with Christ is powerful and some days I can think of nothing better. But most days because of what you are going through, I'm sure that it's better for me to stick it out here. So I plan to be around a while, companion to you as you to companion to you as your growth and joy in this life of trusting God continues. Paul has such a, (laughs) Paul's like, yo, if I stay here, I'm going to plant churches, go on missions. I'm going to raise disciples. I'm going to teach people. There's going to be healing. I'm going to declare the kingdom of God. And I'm going to be an agent of Christ in the world. And there's literally nothing better. There's nothing else that I want to do. And if I die, I get to go and be with Jesus, who's the one that I'm doing it all for anyway. And all of the striving and all of the work and all of the pain and the shipwrecks and the snake bites and the rods and the whips and the lashing, which he doesn't even mind. That's all done. And I just get to enjoy him. His priorities are one, Christ, two, others, the church. He doesn't really, he doesn't really feature much in this. He's like, look, if I really had to choose, like it would be, it would be better for me to go and be with Jesus, let's be honest. But I choose you guys. Because I love you. The challenge in this for us is our life in the body all about fruitful labor for Jesus? Am I discipling other people as Jesus commands? If you are sitting in this room and you have encountered Jesus and you have begun to experience his kingdom and you have begun to engage or you want to engage more, but you're not sure how to, let me help you. The first requirement and the great commission given to every single believer is to go and make disciples, Matthew 28. Every single believer is called to make disciples. How you do that is what's TBD, depending on your world, your culture, what you like, what you're good at, who you hang out with, where you're born, your economic status, your demographic statistics. That determines how maybe you're going to make disciples. But whether you make disciples or not, that's set. Yes. As a Christian, you make disciples. Has my heart been set ablaze with a desire for Jesus and thus a desire to make disciples? I asked myself this question in preparing for this. If I had to write down the list of people I'm discipling, how long would my list be? And it's, it's a little like, ooh, I don't know. Am I, how intentional am I being about this? Is this life in my body fruitful labor for Jesus or not? Am I worshiping something else? Or am I worshiping Jesus? Am I caught up in a vision of him that compels me to want to engage in his kingdom? There is the secret sauce of Christianity is doing. How do you fall in love with playing basketball? You play basketball. How do you fall in love with his kingdom and what he's doing? How do you get to a point like Paul where you can say, you know what? To live is Christ. I love what I'm doing. There's nothing else I would want to do more. And if I die, awesome. Life versus more life, I cannot lose. You get there by doing it. You get there by stepping in. And can I remind us that the kingdom of God is beautiful. It's about binding up the broken hearted. And bringing the orphan and the widow into family. It's about seeing people healed and restored. It's about going from darkness into light. Hopelessness into hope. From isolation and desolation into joy. Jesus is the cure to the worst epidemic humanity has ever faced, which is sin. The separation from God, the source of all goodness. And we carry that cure. If you know Jesus, you have that cure. You have the answer. And there are people everywhere that are desperate for the life that you have. Desperate for Jesus, desperate for his kingdom to break in because they are hopeless and hurting and lost and brokenhearted. Paul's motivation was joy run out of time Philippians 27 let's go to the next slide we're going to breeze through this whatever happens conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ then whether I come and see you or if I only hear about you in my absence I'll know that you stand firm in one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel the gospel is exquisite it is good news And if you can't say that right now, because there was a time in my life where I couldn't say that because I didn't understand it, I hadn't got it yet, you need to go back to the first of the E's, which is encounter. You need to encounter Jesus. And then you need to experience his kingdom, and you need to experience his community. And you need to experience what it's like going from being alone and hopeless in the world to plugging into a table community and experience what it's like to, from being a single mom who can't pay rent and just doesn't know what the heck is going to happen to her to having a whole host of people around you, covering your bills, showing up for you, making meals, watching your kids. Like, we think, oh yeah, that's pretty simple. I've lived a pretty comfortable life. The community of Christ and what we are is so powerful To the people that need it. The people who have actually experienced hopelessness, homelessness, no family, darkness, pain, like demonic possession. For them coming into a community where they're loved and seen and cared for and known and checked up on. It's like, it's insane. It's incredible. And he's saying live a life worthy of that. Don't sit there and veg. Don't waste it. Don't just, be a, don't just come into church and gorge and just fill your head with knowledge, head knowledge. Oh, great. Learned a few more things about Jesus. Now I'm just going to go back to work and do nothing. Don't do that. Because there's so much beauty and incredible work that he's doing in the world. And he's inviting us into doing that with him. We're not the answer. He's the answer. We facilitate it. We are just like nurses and doctors with syringes. We can administer the cure. Hey, would you like the cure to your disease? Yes? Perfect. No? No problem. Would you like the cure to the disease? My gosh! Is there anything more (laughs) beautiful and exciting that we could get lost in and make our lives count for? I'm fired up about evangelism. It's something that I want our church to grow in. And I believe, and when we moved into this building, I had a real prophetic sense that God's going to start to bring in the lost. But beyond him just bringing them in here, I want us to go out there and find them. So start preparing your testimony. Start preparing conversation starters with people. And if you're not at that point ready to engage, please dive into Encountering Jesus. And if you don't know what that means, come and ask me and I'll start to help you or one of the leaders. If you're not at that point, but you need to experience the community, just be in this community. Experience God's love. But the lost are coming in. I'll finish with this story. I went to Kaiser the other day for a checkup. And I had a a male nurse help me with with the checkup that I was doing. And he was just such a cool guy. And he was so kind and gracious. And I really appreciated him. And I said to him, hey man, I, I, I really appreciate how you've taken care of me today. I want to share something and kind of take care of you and share something that's really important for me. And I said, do you know Jesus? And he said, no. And I said, have you heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus? And he said, no. And I was like, hold on, what? (laughs) This guy, probably mid-30s, African-American male, lives in LA, works in Anaheim. I'm like, we're not in Papua New Guinea. We're in Anaheim this guy's a nurse. He's smart. He has kids. He has a a wife or a girlfriend. He's never heard the gospel. I was like, are you kidding me? It's right here on our doorstep. And he's like, what is the gospel? I was like, well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) We have about four seconds before your next patient comes in. And because I knew I had four seconds, I was like, what the heck do I do? And I said, you know what? Very simply put, God is real. He loves you and he has a plan for your life. Oh, I can't. I want this guy, my friend here, Dom, to steer, to share his story at some point, because those few words, God has a plan for your life, literally completely changed this man's world. God has a plan for your life. And I said, Brandon, would you do me a favor? He's like, okay. He's looking real like, Ooh. and I was like, will you pray, Jesus? If you are real, show yourself to me. And he's like. I said, it doesn't cost you anything. Just do it in private, in your head even. And he's like, okay. (laughs) Next. And I was like, I left, like, I checked out some seeds. You know what I mean? Like, some seeds are out there. This guy's never heard the gospel, and now he knows God's real. God loves him and has a plan for his life. And I was like, okay, this is how it starts. Let's go, Lord. I want to be like Paul, just enraptured. I want to be so caught up in you and the good that you're doing and the beauty that you're bringing and the restoration and the redemption. That's his vision. That's why Paul's doing this. That's why he can say, I, "To everything else is trash. Because earning my accolades in Judaism and being a scholar and being all fancy and this is trash. It means nothing in comparison with seeing souls saved. It means nothing in comparison with the kingdom of heaven breaking in from heaven to earth and people being torn out of darkness and death and being brought into light. That's the prize. That's why I do this. Verse 30. Oh man, I'm going to be disciplined because I've gone for so long sorry guys. Public apology. AJ, could you cut the first 15 minutes of the sermon off and then Chris went. Uh, see? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just read 30 and then we're done. Uh, 28 to 30. Without being frightened in any way because those of, because of, uh, by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed or that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted on your behalf Of Christ, it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I have and now hear that I still have. We're going to get into suffering for Jesus at a later date in this book of Philippians. It's part of it. If you believe for him, you suffer for him. And that's like, oh, that's terrifying until you remember how Paul views suffering, how it's not a prison, it's a platform, how it's a judo pivot point. When, when the suffering comes at you and you go, Wah, and you flip it, and it's on its back, and you're like, see? This is now a platform for God's greatness. Yeah. Oh, let's pray. Jesus, as I read these incredible words by a man who was arrested by your greatness and goodness, and so caught up and compelled in who you are and your kingdom, I cannot help but pray one simple prayer. God, work in me and change my heart. Because I know that I cannot conjure up that level of commitment or intensity or devotion to you. I cannot conjure up enough desire or willpower to be willing to lay down my life for your kingdom. I cannot conjure up enough Religion, for me to say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I need you, God, to work in my heart. And I want you to reveal yourself to me in ever-increasing glory and change my heart to be more like you. I want to know you, as Paul said. I want to know Jesus And to do that, I'm willing to participate in his suffering, participate in his death, because I know I will participate in his resurrection. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. We're here, we're available, we're excited, we love you. Do a mighty work in us. Amen.